In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel is a boy's name. It's derived from the Hebrew name Yehezkeh, which means God will strengthen. One cannot preach from Ezekiel without reminding ourselves again and again that he was regarded as one of the greatest prophets, along with Isaiah and Jeremiah. Ezekiel has a reputation for strangeness. We often think because of the prophet's unearthly visions, yes, but also because Ezekiel acted out God's messages through some pretty bizarre behavior. For instance, for months at a time, he lay in a public place on his side, bound by ropes, facing a clay model of Jerusalem. I suppose when a car is about to drive over a cliff, we might take strange measures to get the driver's attention, screaming so loudly and waving so wildly that people might think we are insane. Maybe Ezekiel was doing the same. He was giving his message in the most vivid and noticeable way possible to force people to pay attention. He was desperate for them to listen to God's message, to heed God's warning. Ezekiel wrote this Old Testament book largely from Babylon. He was among the first captives taken there when the Babylonians captured Jerusalem in the 6th century BC, systematically destroying the city and the temple in about 587 BC, making Ezekiel God's messenger as a captive in exile. His voice blended, you could say, in stereo with that of Jeremiah, still in Jerusalem. Both prophets had been warning their people that Babylon's oppression was growing mightier and more threatening, whatever they did and plotted to try and free themselves from the advance of this mighty empire. God had been urging Israel to change their ways, because if they did not, they would not escape the judgment that was coming. Ezekiel is offering wisdom to his listeners about what God expects. God doesn't want their death and is going to great effort to get their attention, showing his faithfulness to them. He is patient, but his patience will run out. In spite of his warnings, God is ignored, so he will use another way to get their attention suffering. The reading from Ezekiel this morning begins with God asking Ezekiel a question. The father eats sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And his meaning is clear. The exiles are either applying an old saying to their present situation or they're creating a new one, explaining and accepting that children's, children suffer because of their parents' mistakes. As proverbs go, this is one that often rings true with us, isn't it? How many of us here this morning, I won't ask you to put your hands up as I would have if I was in a classroom, but how many of us here this morning has not at some time blamed a parent's limitations or not struggled against a lingering emotional injury 
actual or perceived by each of us. The poet Philip Larkin's words about parents are now passing down through the generations. I won't quote it absolutely. They mess you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. Here, by the exiles applying this proverb to themselves, we have the crux of the matter. And not only does it allow the exiles to blame others for their current plight, it also hides the cause of their woes. While it is true that the Babylonian exile is the final consequence of a long series of rebellions, it was the recent standoff that risks the kingdom of Judah. By identifying with the children in this proverb, the exiles are casting themselves as innocent victims, as if Nebuchadnezzar's deportation had not singled out those plotting against him and Babylon had been responsible for the rebellion. He wanted to punish them, so he took them captive. God is urging the exiles to acknowledge their own guilt, repent of their sin, and live. But something else is happening here, because by challenging this proverb, Ezekiel is also challenging their attitude to guilt and sin. For this proverb is clearly connected to the ancient Israelite understanding of intergenerational responsibility for guilt, the sons, sins of our forefathers being the cause of our misery, not us, but the sins of others. Ezekiel 18 marks a breakthrough to this old understanding by introducing something very new, the idea of individual moral responsibility, the attitude of, it wasn't me, Gov, I'm innocent, is being challenged. Personal responsibility or culpability by an individual or group is the theme of Ezekiel 18. And God affirms this very clearly. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will be no longer quote this proverb in Israel, for every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. Here, God is establishing a close connection between guilt and punishment. There is to be no blame on anyone else. And neither guilt nor righteousness is to be carried from one generation to the next. Only the wicked one dies. We have it in a nutshell in verse 32 at the end of today's reading. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. The most pressing question is not, it seems, who gets punished. It is, what are sinners to do? What does God want? The answer is that they must let go the self-justifying but limiting ways of seeing themselves. In Ezekiel, this means letting go of this proverb and the old Israelite way of viewing sin if you like, taking the easy way out. 
it wasn't me. Yet remarkably, the exiles cling to it even after God establishes that only the wicked will suffer for their sins. One would think that this is good news. But the exiles would rather identify with the children in the proverb, seeing themselves as victims, rather than as people capable of making moral decisions and taking charge of their own destiny. And they object again when God declares that even the wicked may live by turning from their wickedness and say that the way of the Lord is not just. Although this is probably more of a resentful sigh than a complaint. A bit like when we say, life isn't fair. To no one in particular, but it helps us. Life just isn't fair. They had divorced their suffering from their own actions, saying that it made no difference how they acted. We could say they preferred the tidiness of this self-limiting proverb to getting their heads around what must have seemed to them a pretty unknowable mystery. God's offer of a new life by guaranteeing forgiveness for those who turn away from their sins. They could not see, let alone understand, that God was open to human repentance and life instead of the endless cycle of suffering if they continued to believe in this old pattern of guilt and shame, because it would go on and on as a form of death. Their parents might have made a mess of things, but the children have eaten their fair share of sour grapes. It's time to let go, and paradoxically, accepting responsibility for guilt also makes it possible to let it go, doesn't it? To be free of it. God challenges them in verse 31 to rid yourself of all the offences you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. God is telling them that repentance doesn't mean guilt is to be carried as a burden or from generation to generation. Neither does it mean the stewing of remorse or regret, a dwelling on things that we have done. Instead, it is the first step towards transformation, what Ezekiel calls a new heart and a new spirit. Repentance is an active, deliberate step and a new direction. It is a step into the future, into life itself. I remember my wonderful old vicar who used to tell us all frequently that the journey from one's heart to one's head is the longest journey in the world, but one of the most worthwhile. And until the exiles made this decision, they would not be fit to return to Israel to live a life in faithfulness to God. Ezekiel's task in Babylon was to prepare the way for those who could accept this new way of living. And then can be no doubt, Ezekiel is writing to all of us. 
God wants us to live, to live under his sovereignty and justice. And God judges the lives of individuals according to their faithfulness, their obedience to him. He's no more concerned with what a person is. He is far more concerned with what a person is after they possess a faith in him than what actually got them to that point. They're to let go of everything when they repent. And it's how they are afterwards that God will judge them on. In the reading from Matthew this morning, the parable of the two sons is aimed at the religious leadership in Jerusalem when the authority of Jesus is questioned by them. They are like the first son in the parable because they have said they are obedient to God the Father, but they really have disobeyed. The priests appeared to be saying yes to God, but they didn't follow through. Their rituals and outward obedience looked as if they did. But Jesus is indicating to them that when it came down to it, they were missing something very fundamental. They were missing the core of God's grace. They said all the right things, but like the son who did this, they failed to do what the father wanted. They failed to work with the people of Israel. They had left God's vineyard unattended. They had not paid attention to people's needs or sought to help them. They were too busy with the busy rituals and the old ways of their establishment. The chief priests and the elders were clinging to the old ways rather than recognizing that God was doing something new. For this passage in Matthew is all about a new heart and a new spirit also. When Jesus is asked to tell them the source of his authority, Jesus backs up a step and answers their question with another question. I remember a Jewish friend telling me that this is something that rabbis always do. You ask them a question and they will ask one back. Jesus's question is about John the Baptist, his cousin. If you can tell me where his authority came from, then I'll tell you where mine comes from, he replies. Jesus asked this knowing full well that the answer to both questions was the same. Neither John nor Jesus had any human authority. If either John the Baptist or Jesus had any true authority to claim, it had to be from God directly. And this is where Jesus had them, because it was well known that the chief priests had despised John the Baptist. John had called them names and placed them on a par with everyone else who came out into the desert to meet him. Their members only card, due to their safely guarded positions within the religious establishment, cut no ice with John. Nor, John said, did it matter to God. If even the Pharisees wanted to be saved, they had to submit to John's baptism of repentance, the same as everyone else. A repentance that would clear their ways to change from the old established ways to a new heart and a new spirit to life over death. 
but they preferred safety, just as the exiles had. And they couldn't say they recognized John as a prophet sent by God, so they were stuck. So they tell Jesus, we don't know. Jesus then answers them by saying, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. On one level, we could say Jesus is merely being cheeky. However, on a deeper level, Jesus simply recognizes that there is very little sense in talking to people who are mentally closed. They were not really seeking information. The minds were made up about Jesus long before this rather sly question. They were hard-hearted. They needed change and a new spirit. But this would only be possible through repentance, which they refuse, and salvation, which they are being offered through God's grace, which they also refuse. Amen.